to Mark Shuckett. Dr. Shuckett is a highly esteemed professor of psychiatry at the University of California at San Diego. Dr. Shuckett directs an alcohol and drug treatment program and alcohol research center. Dr. Shuckett is speaking this morning on an update on the genetics of alcoholism. Dr. Mark Shuckett. This is a bit of a change of pace for you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is, I consider, an extremely important organization. And it's made up of many people who have done very many kind things for me, as well as for the whole field of alcohol and drugs over the years. As you heard from the introduction, I actually wear a number of different hats. I am a clinician. And as a clinician, I direct an alcohol and drug treatment program and have done so since 1978. It's the San Diego VA Hospital, which is on our campus and our major teaching hospital. Second, I'm an educator. I have chosen to not set up a separate private practice, but to see patients through the university and to spend a great deal of my time teaching medical, school, medical students, residents, and various other faculty members about alcohol and drugs and the interaction with psychiatric disorders. And then third, I do research. What I hope to do today is to educate you a bit about a very clinically relevant issue that has its basis in research. So if you can picture me up here wearing all three hats, I hope to share with you a series of studies that began in the early 1970s when we began to, quest, to question, is it at all possible that this disorder, alcoholism, could be a genetically influenced problem? Taking you through some preliminary conclusions into how do you even begin to ask if it is genetically influenced, what is it that might be inherited to increase the risk? So I'm hoping to give you some ammunition that you will use with your colleagues who still look at alcoholism and drug dependence as if it's a moral problem, to try to help show them that there are good data to indicate that this is a biologically influenced disorder and not everybody is equal in risk and there are people who carry an extremely heavy burden they need to fight off. I'm also hoping to give you ammunition that you will use to help educate families of alcoholics and drug abusers, although my data will deal with alcoholism. So families of alcoholics to show that close relatives of alcoholics are at very high risk and give them, those family members, some information about one theory on how that high risk might be manifest. So maybe these kids can be taught that they're at high risk and taught some early warning signs that they might be able to pay attention to. So to help you with your colleagues and changing their philosophical outlook, to help you with the families of alcoholics, especially to help prevent severe alcohol problems before they begin. And finally, I'm hoping that my presentation today which could be subtitled The Anatomy of a Prospective Study, will show you some of the thinking that went into putting some research together so you can get some idea, for those of you who have not done research, can gain some idea of what goes into some of the thinking, what risks are taken, and no matter how beautiful those slides look or no matter how great a graph looks in a published paper, recognize that there's a hell of a lot more variation going on there than it appears at first glance. You can understand that by looking at what it takes to put a study together. So the focus is going to be on the genetics of alcoholism, to try to give you some tools to change attitudes and to educate people, and to give you some greater understanding of where we are in this important field dealing with genetic factors. First question that comes to mind what the heck am I doing lecturing on this issue? Are there even data that indicate that alcoholism is likely to be genetically influenced? Well, there are plenty of data. Those data are not definitive. That is, those data do not say there's no question but that alcoholism is genetically influenced, but these data say it is highly likely. 
Those data come from family, twin, and adoption studies. In a nutshell, because it's not where we are today, it's where we were in 1970. In a nutshell, alcoholism runs very strongly in families, with the risk for alcoholism being about four times increased in close relatives of alcoholics. The fact that it runs in families means it might have a genetic influence. It means it's worth looking further, but doesn't prove it's genetic because people are usually raised with their biological relatives. But within those families of alcoholics, you don't tend to see all sorts of psychopathology, psychiatric disorders. You see mostly alcoholism. And within those families of alcoholics, the greater the number of alcoholic relatives, the higher the risk, even if you're not raised with those relatives. Those things indicate it is well worth looking further to try and tease out the relative importance of genetics and environment. So the next type of study, and these data were also available by the early 1970s, were the twin studies. The twin studies are attempting to disentangle environment from genetic influences. And what they do is they say, hey, if you're a twin pair, you're born at the same time. So if you're an alcoholic, and if something in your childhood environment caused that alcoholism, you got somebody over here who was born at the same time, raised in the same childhood environment, you're twin. So if alcoholism is related to childhood environment, the twin of an alcoholic should have a high risk for alcoholism. Shouldn't matter what kind of twinship's involved if it's the environment. But of course, there are two types of twins. The fraternal twins, separate egg and sperm, sharing 50% of their genes just happen to be born at the same time. And the identical twins, who are 100% genetically identical, coming from the same egg-sperm combination after several multiplications. So if alcoholism were related to childhood environment, then the twin of an alcoholic should be at high risk for alcoholism, no matter what kind of twinship is involved. But if alcoholism is related to genetics, then the risk for the identical twin of an alcoholic should be much higher than the risk for a fraternal twin, and all studies but one show that. That is, all studies but one, and that's an unusual study, but one we should not totally forget about. All of the twin studies but one show that the risk for alcoholism in the fraternal twin of an alcoholic is about as high as in any two full siblings. But the risk for alcoholism in the identical twin of an alcoholic is twice that again. So the twin studies are consistent with childhood environment not being the primary cause of alcoholism, but genetic factors being involved. Third type of study are the adoption studies, which put your money where my mouth is. And that, those adoption studies, and we did one and published in 1972, those studies say if alcoholism is genetically influenced, then sons and daughters of alcoholics must be at high risk, even if they're adopted out at birth and don't know about their biological parents' problems. And that is, in fact, what every adoption study since 1950 shows. There's a three- to four-fold increased risk for alcoholism, usually defined consistent with what is alcohol dependence in DSM-3R or alcohol dependence in DSM-3. There is a three- to four-fold increased risk for alcoholism in sons and daughters of alcoholics, even when adopted out at birth, even when the adoptive parents are not alcoholic. In fact, if the adoptive parents are alcoholic, the risk for alcoholism is slightly lower. But it is the risk for alcoholism in the biological parents that predicts it, not the alcoholism in the rearing home. Now, you look at those family twin and adoption studies and you say, great, it appears as if it's genetically influenced. So by the mid-70s, we began to try to put together a study which has taken us 20 years. And in that study, we're trying to find out what it is that might be inherited to increase the risk. Facing the fact that alcoholism appears to be genetically influenced and trying to find out what it is that might be inherited, however, caused us to have to back up a bit and ask ourselves a number of questions. For example, genetics of what? You know, when you talk to people around, when you're at meetings or when you happen to be at a party, people tend to use the word drinker and alcoholic to be synonymous. Similarly, when people start to think about genetics of alcoholism, many say, oh, let's try and find out what makes people drink. 
95% of people in the United States are drinkers at some time during their lives. Almost 70% are drinkers in any particular year of adults. It's hard for me to figure out a genetic factor other than breathing that contributes to whether somebody in our societies decides that they want to become a drinker. Is that slide burning up or is it looking okay? Okay, great. Okay, great, thanks. So, I don't think that I should be looking at what it is that makes somebody to decide to become a drinker. Well, the second possibility, if you're going to focus on genetics of what? Maybe there's a genetic factor that's different that helps determine whether once you're a drinker, you decide to become a drinker again a week from now. Continuation of drinking. Most people in this country, Canada, and in the United States who decide to try alcohol, try it on multiple occasions. There's an aside here. If you happen to be Oriental, especially Japanese, Chinese, or Korean, you've got a 50% chance that when you drink that first time, you'll flush. And about 10% of that 50% of flushers will flush terribly and get very sick. That's a genetically controlled factor that's irrelevant for anything other than Orientals. And in, but in those Orientals who have the severe flush, which is genetically controlled, that is a genetic factor that determines their risk for alcoholism because they don't drink again. But in all others, there are very few genetic factors that are likely to contribute to the decision to continue to be a drinker or the third step. You know that in the United States, if I survey 18 to 25-year-old men, that about two-thirds of them have had some sort of alcohol-related adverse life event. Two-thirds have had some problem related to booze. Now, what's the problem? Drinking at a party to the point you have a blackout, that's probably seen in 40% of men. I don't know the proportion of women, most of whom never go on to develop alcoholism. Missing some school or work because of drinking, that's probably seen in, again, at least a third of young men in the United States. Having arguments with people or doing things while intoxicated you wish you hadn't done, probably seen in close to half of men in the United States. It is an unfortunate fact of life, an unfortunate fact of life, that the majority of men in the United States, and I would bet you the majority of women, have temporary problems related to alcohol, but they learn from them, and I don't think that there are major genetic factors involved in whether they're likely to have problems as they're learning how to drink. My guess, and yours could be different, is maybe there are genetic factors that made it very easy for me to learn how to control my drinking. And people who drank with me and had every bit as strong a desire to learn how to control their drinking could control it, but not consistently, not always. And my bet is that there may be biological factors on how people react to alcohol that contribute to a lack of an ability or a diminished capacity, I should say, a diminished ability to easily learn how to control that drinking on a regular basis. But all that this slide is showing you is fine. Genetics of alcoholism. It appears that alcoholism is genetically influenced, but it ain't so simple. Is it genetics of why people drink, why they develop temporary problems, why some people develop temporary problems and learn easily to moderate and other people don't? Your guess is as good as mine, but mine goes on the yellow line. So we said, what the heck, let's try. And in 1975, we put together a study trying to find out what it is that might be inherited to increase the risk, and we faced additional problems. Alcoholism or alcohol dependence in the various diagnostic patterns is usually defined as something that indicates you got a lot of troubles with booze, despite which you continue to go back to booze and you develop more problems. And almost all of the definitions, no matter what they're focusing on, hit on that development of severe life impairment. Despite that, you continue to go back and you develop more life impairment. Okay. Well, there are a lot of people around who have that and may not have what I would study as a genetic disorder predisposition alcoholism. For example, Abe Tversky taught us about some people who have schizophrenia. Late teens, mid-twenties, develop this terrible psychotic disorder. They can't relate to people. They hear voices. They're off to themselves. They're going to be crazy their whole lives in all likelihood. Those people with real schizophrenia have an increased risk, probably, I think, because we don't treat them. We keep them on the streets. They have an increased risk for getting into trouble with alcohol. Well, I'd have to be stupid to say that 
if I'm looking for a genetic factor, I should take this unusual group and throw them in to a genetic study with people who don't have that kind of weird background. Second example, about 3% of the people in the United States, 3% of men, I should say, and 1% of women, have something that looks like a screws loose. From about age 8 or 7, they start getting into trouble, and they get into trouble in every area of their life. They break into neighbors' houses. They beat people up. They use sticks and other weapons in fights. They don't form close relationships. They don't seem to benefit from punishment. Problems escalate more and more long before they've ever had trouble from alcohol and drugs. These people are called the antisocial personality disorder. They are very impulsive, and when they get into alcohol and drugs, all hell breaks loose, and they develop severe problems with alcohol and drugs. But I would have to be stupid. If they represent a small percentage of the population, if most alcoholics don't look like that at all, if their course before alcoholism, their course during treatment, and their post-alcoholic functioning are quite different than the usual alcoholic, in a genetic study, for heaven's sakes, don't include them. If you're looking for genetics of alcoholism, you're looking for genetics of the antisocial personality disorder, or what Conninger is calling type 2 alcoholism, include them. But you want genetics of what is usually involved in alcoholism, it makes no sense. So I had to make some decisions. Not everyone who gets into trouble from alcohol should be part of a study trying to look at genetic factors. I end up focusing on about 70% of the people who develop severe problems from alcohol. And I do not study the people who have major pre-existing psychiatric disorders or major severe personality disorders such as the antisocial personality disorder. Next complicating factor, and these are all important for you in understanding, one, how to educate your colleagues and your patients, and two, how studies are put together. The second factor you've got to realize, background. There are people who seem to make a living, unfair, editorial, but my opinion, who seem to make a living by setting up a straw dog about genetic research. The straw dog they set up is, those genetic researchers say that alcoholism is a genetic disease and that that's ridiculous. Well, I, I, nobody who does work in this field says alcoholism is a genetic illness like Huntington's Korea. There are strong environmental influences in alcoholism. Nobody is saying that you, did, you inherit a gene and you develop alcoholism. People are only beginning to look at what are some of the biological factors that interact with environment to produce that picture of severe repetitive problems related to booze. So I'm studying a disorder that ain't easy. Huntington's chorea is easy to study. One gene, one illness, you get the gene, you always get the illness. Here, the identical twin of an alcoholic has at most a 70% chance of developing alcoholism, a 30% chance that despite they have identical genes, they don't develop alcoholism. Environment has to be important. We also know of an environmental factor without which alcoholism cannot develop. And our research says without this environmental factor, other psychiatric disorders don't take its place. Alcohol. So there have got to be environmental factors. That complicates the search for what it is that might be inherited to increase the risk for alcoholism. And the final complicating factor I'm going to lay on you today is the mode of inheritance. There are in medicine a number of disorders that are genetically controlled, autosomal dominant or recessive. They are extremely rare. Most of the disorders in medicine that are genetically influenced are not clearly dominant and not clearly recessive. Examples, some forms of adult onset diabetes, some forms of epilepsy, some forms of atherosclerotic heart disease have genetic influences, but it is not clearly autosomal dominant or recessive as Mendel would like to have taught. Once it's not either of those two forms, it is very hard to study and find the gene. It is likely that alcoholism has one of two modes of inheritance. And these are fudge factors. By telling you these, I'm telling you nobody knows what they're talking about. Factor one, possibility one. It is autosomal dominant. It comes down on one gene, but sometimes it expresses itself and sometimes it doesn't. It is called incomplete penetrance. Very difficult to study. If 
27 people in a family could have the gene, and only five of those 27 show the disorder because it's not always expressed. Second potential mode of inheritance, polygenic, which means no one gene causes it, but there are maybe 12. And out of those 12, maybe you've got to cross a threshold and get seven. How are you ever going to pick that up genetically? Well, it doesn't stop us from trying. Where we are right now, alcoholism does appear to be genetically influenced. Despite the problem of not knowing which part of the alcohol history is key, despite that, despite subgroups, despite the importance of environment, and despite the fact that the mode of inheritance is complicated, the family, twin, and adoption studies show that this disorder appears to have a fairly strong genetic influence. Enter a study, 1975. Here's what we tried to do. We developed a method of identifying people at high risk for alcoholism, looking through the literature to try and find out those things that might be different about people at high risk. They're not yet alcoholic, but they're at high risk for future development of alcoholism. Looking through the literature to find things to look at, evaluating these people at high risk for alcoholism, and then evaluating people who are at least theoretically at low risk for alcoholism, seeing if there are any difference. If differences are there, those differences might relate to why group one is at high risk for alcoholism. Then what we planned on, but the government never gives you money for more than three to at most five years, what we planned on is then following people up, perhaps 10 years later, and trying to find out any of those differences at time one? Did they predict who would develop severe alcohol problems and who wouldn't? That's what the study's about. Now, how would you go about selecting a group at high risk for alcoholism? Look at families of alcoholics. That's where the money is. That's the best predictor that I know of somebody's risk for alcoholism, except for the antisocial personality disorder, which is a separate disorder. The best factor I know associated with the alcoholism risk, a fourfold increased risk, is have an alcoholic family member. What family member? Well, if you pick somebody who's got an alcoholic brother or sister, you don't know if it's coming down genetically, because you don't know if it's coming up in multiple generations, so forget that. If you pick somebody who's got an alcoholic mother, you've got a problem. The problem is, if there's any differences between your group at high risk and your group at low risk, you don't know if it's related to fetal alcohol effect. Bathing the baby in utero in alcohol causes lots of changes that have nothing to do with genetics of alcoholism. They have to do with the toxic effect of alcohol on the developing fetus. So I can't choose sons or daughters of alcoholic mothers. What am I going to do? I'm going to choose sons. Excuse me, let's get to that in a sec. I'm going to choose children of alcoholic fathers. And I would love to see other alcoholic family members. That'd be great to show that the family was as loaded for alcoholism as possible, but I'm not going to choose sons of alcoholic mothers or daughters of alcoholic mothers. Now, so I know what I'm going to do. I know it's real risky, but I'm going to try and take a group at high risk for alcoholism based on the family history of alcoholism. I'm going to choose at least an alcoholic father, and I'm going to hope there are more alcoholics in the family, like grandparents or brothers or sisters or aunts and uncles that are also alcoholic. Am I going to study all races, men and women? I can't. I've got a 20-year study here. I've got to pick one group, try and get as many people as I can so that I've got a large, somewhat homogeneous group. I choose sons of alcoholic fathers. Why sons and why not daughters? Do you know? The, the risk for alcoholism is four times increased over the general population for daughters of alcoholics. Women in the general population have a three to five percent risk for alcoholism. Daughters of alcoholics will be 12 to 20 percent risk. And the risk for alcoholism in sons of alcoholics is fourfold increased over the general population risk of somewhere around 10-ish percent. That means the risk for alcoholism in sons of alcoholics is somewhere conservatively between 30 and 40 percent. I'd have to be stupid to pick a group with a potential risk at follow-up as low as 12% when I can pick a group with at risk for follow-up at the time of follow-up as high as 40%. So I do sons of alcoholics. But so that you know I'm not prejudiced, I'm collaborating with some people on the East Coast at Harvard who are doing a very similar study to ours with daughters. So what I do is I pick 18 to 25-year-old men. I want people who are already drinkers. 
I don't want to choose anyone who has chosen to be an abstainer because part of my work is going to be to see do they react differently to alcohol. 18 to 25-year-old males who are either students or working somewhere in the San Diego area related to our university or any of the affiliated hospitals. I use a questionnaire. This just gives you an outline. I use a questionnaire to first identify children of alcoholics, drinkers who are not yet themselves in severe problems, and children of non-alcoholics. Then we follow that up with a telephone interview, then a personal interview, then gathering information from other family members if need be. And what we're trying to do is to get a group, and we did, approximately 237 sons of alcoholic fathers. Took us about 10 years to gather the sample. And for each son of an alcoholic father, we had a control, but we're going to test them with alcohol, so we got to match them on educational level, we got to match them on socioeconomic level, smoking history, drug use history, quantity of alcohol intake, frequency of alcohol intake, and a variety of other things. So we've got matched sets. Son of alcoholics, son of a non-alcoholic, 237 approximately in each group, 474 is our total sample. Okay, we tested them in two conditions. Remind you where we are for the next time you're trying to educate your colleagues. Family, twin, and adoption studies show that alcoholism is genetically influenced. All reasoning demonstrates it ain't an easy mode of inheritance to study. Environment is going to be very important. My guess is environment is at least as important as genetics in contributing to the risk. And the mode of inheritance ain't going to be easy, and there are going to be subgroups, just as there are of people with any behaviorally defined syndrome. Now, trying to look for what it is that might be inherited, we're studying a large group of people at high risk for alcoholism and controls, and first we study them at time one, are they different? And then we study them at time two and find out did any of the differences predict who would develop severe problems from alcohol or drugs and predict some other things that are kind of interesting I'll get to in a moment. Let me tell you some of the results of this comparison of approximately 237 sons of alcoholics to 237 sons of non-alcoholics. Real interesting. Over the years, we've used a bunch of different personality measures. We've used the locus of control, which tells you whether somebody thinks that they're internally controlled or the devil makes them do things. We've used measures of anxiety. We've used measures of nervousness and measures of outgoingness, neuroticism, and uh, extroversion on the iSync personality inventory. We've used subscales of the MMPI. And, as you would guess, some of the sons of alcoholics are pretty squirrely. However, no more squirrely than the sons of non-alcoholics. The personality profiles in this carefully selected group of sons of alcoholic fathers, these alcoholic fathers had severe alcoholism but did not have the antisocial personality disorder, did not differ markedly as a group from the sons of non-alcoholics on personality measures, nor did they differ from the sons of alcoholics on most cognitive measures or most soft neurological sign measures, probably related to the fact we're studying sons of alcoholic fathers, not alcoholic mothers. But it is amazing how similar the sons of alcoholics were to the sons of non-alcoholics in the baseline before we gave them an alcohol challenge. Then remembering that they're all drinkers, remembering that the son of an alcoholic is matched with the son of a non-alcoholic on the usual drinking history. We challenged them with placebo, where they thought they were getting booze but didn't get any, a lower-dose alcohol, which is the lower two lines. And a lower-dose alcohol was the equivalent of about three drinks. You peak a little above 60 milligrams per deciliter, 0.06, and you come on down. And we also challenged them with a higher dose of alcohol, where you peaked a little over legally drunk, a little over 100 milligrams per deciliter and then started to come on down. There are two lines for both the low dose and the high dose. There's a green and a yellow line. One is son of alcoholic, other son of non-alcoholic. They don't differ. The son of an alcoholic and son of a non-alcoholic do not differ on how fast they absorb the booze, on how high their blood alcohol level gets, or how fast the alcohol disappears from the bloodstream. That's an important finding. Neither our work nor anyone else's work has ever indicated 
that a risk factor for alcoholism is how fast you absorb the booze or whether you get a bigger high based on the blood alcohol level you get or whether the blood alcohol stays with you longer or shorter. It's not relevant to the alcoholism risk. The only way this study could be done is matching these groups on usual quantity and frequency of drinking very well. So we've got groups that are very similar on background history, similar on blood alcohol levels, but the major difference was the hollow leg. The major difference was that approximately 40% of the family history positives, the sons of alcoholics, FHP, and only about 5% of the family history negatives showed a statistically significant diminished response to booze at the lower doses. Now remember, we're not giving anybody 8 to 10 drinks. We couldn't for a whole host of reasons, ethical as well as research methodology, because everybody throws up at that, at that level of alcohol. So we couldn't do it. But three to five drinks you can do, and then you can take a history. And what we found by history, both groups were equally likely to feel extremely drunk if they got to very high levels of alcohol. They weren't different on that, the proportion at a, at a given quantity frequency who reported hangovers or who reported feeling extremely drunk. But at the lower doses of alcohol, where we challenged them, about 40% of the sons of alcoholics showed less response, as if they were getting less feedback about where their blood alcohol level was, showed less response. How do you measure? response. One way to do it, take any one of those bars, take any one of the yellow-green bar combinations. What we did, every 15 to 30 minutes after they drank the placebo or the low dose or the high dose, these guys filled out a checklist. And that checklist told us how drunk they felt, how high they felt on a 36-point scale. Zero, I don't feel drunk at all. The 36, I feel the most drunk I could possibly imagine how high, how drunk, how slurred speech, how much floating, how nauseated, etc. And then those bars show if you take a three-hour period and you sum it all up, you give the average, one group consistently is showing a higher rating on each of those as the average over the three hours than the others. And the group that always showed the higher rating were the yellow bars, and those are the sons of non-alcoholics. The sons of alcoholics were telling us that they were feeling less drunk. There's a problem with that. The problem is maybe they reported they were feeling less drunk because they thought they should. Maybe there were some psychological things. So we want to double check that. The way you double check that is you do some measures that people are not likely to be able to volitionally make change more or less on a scale. What we chose were a series of hormones especially after the higher dose alcohol, there will be in most people significant changes in cortisol from the adrenal glands. There will be a significant change in most people on ACTH from the pituitary. And there will be a significant change in most people on prolactin, also from the pituitary. And what we found was, as an example here with cortisol, the sons of alcoholics as a group, and especially 40% of the sons of alcoholics, hormonally looked like we gave them water, even after the five drinks. Here's an example. We're testing people in the morning, and in the morning your, your cortisol is dropping. The yellow line is what should happen. What should happen is I give you the booze, there should be a blip up as the booze is hitting you, and then instead of your cortisol level falling, which should be happening at that time of day, it plateaus and then later drops. That's what alcohol does at that time of day, but it only did it in the family history negatives. Family history positives line looks no different than the placebo line for them. Same thing, very similar, marked differences on ACTH and prolactin. Also marked differences with about 40% of the sons of alcoholics showing less response on brainwave stuff. So. You can take all this together, put it in a fancy discriminant function analysis. Yellow dots are family history negative, and the green dots are family history positive. As you're watching the slide, the more toward the left you are, the less your overall global reaction in about 40% of the sons of alcoholics, and a very small number of the sons of non-alcoholics show a decreased response. Good story. The story is that one risk factor 
that might be related to alcoholism is having less intense response from lower doses of booze, but by the history we get, being quite capable of getting drunk at the higher doses. Well, we've got a finding. What's the theory behind the finding? Theory is one of two things. I think that I learn how to control my drinking by making mistakes when I started off drinking in my teenage years, getting drunk, doing things I didn't like, and then learning slowly to use internal cues to tell me if I go much further I'm going to be drunk and I won't care about stopping. And I get those internal cues at two and three drinks. I rarely go beyond two and three. My teeth get numb. My lips get a little bit numb. I'm not really very drunk. Nobody notices it. I notice it. And I've learned by trial and error that if I don't stop now, once I get up to five or six, I'm not so sure I care about stopping. And it's fairly easy for me. But about 40% of the sons of alcoholics, at the same level that I'm getting numb, are feeling nothing, almost nothing. And I think what happens to them is I think that their blood alcohol goes up, but they're not getting very drunk. And then all of a sudden, I think they get very drunk very quickly. That's a hell of a thing to try to learn to control. I don't know how people can learn how to control that except by not drinking. You could try to count drinks, but who does that regularly and with any kind of efficacy? Second theory. Second theory that's related to this. Everyone goes out when they're teenagers and they want a particular high. In order to get that high, Sons of alcoholics require a fair amount more, at least the, the ones at high risk, require a fair amount more. The requiring more to get that high keeps shifting their tolerance. They not only have their innate tolerance, they start acquiring more and more tolerance. They keep shifting. They and I might drive home the same, the same level of internal feeling of intoxication, but if they get picked up, they're in jail. If I get picked up, I'm way below what legally drunk might be, would be a second theory. The more they drink, the more they need to drink, and, and it becomes a vicious cycle. Those are the theories. So what we've got is alcoholism is genetically influenced. What's at risk to increase the risk can be studied, even though it's very complicated, and we've done a large study, but I've only given you half the picture. Half the picture is what happens when you choose to test 18 to 25-year-olds, sons of alcoholics and controls who are drinking but not yet in trouble from alcohol. The real key, and without which I believe the study would not be very worthwhile, is to follow people up. And this is the beauty. 474 guys, approximately. 10 years. Huge number of guys. 10 years. I should be able to tell you, through this follow-up, does the family history of alcoholism or any of the data that we collected at time one regarding their reactions to alcohol predict who develops alcohol dependence? Ah, but I should also be able to tell you, does it predict who will use drugs? I should also be able to tell you, does it predict who will develop drug dependence? And very relevant, I should be able to tell you whether the people at high risk for alcoholism are at high risk for mental disorders in a prospective study. There are those of my colleagues, I am not one of them, who believe that alcoholism and drug abuse is a self-medication of an underlying psychiatric disorder in the average alcoholic. I don't believe that's true, and I have lots of data to show why I don't believe it's true. This gives me a chance to find out another way of looking at whether it's true. Because if it were, then at follow-up, the sons of alcoholics should be at higher risk for major depression, for psychotic disorders, for anxiety disorders, etc. Now, a follow-up study of this size is in itself an interesting story. We trained interviewers to be able to find these guys, and then the interviewers would go out blind. They didn't know whether the guy was family history positive or negative, had no idea about his initial reaction to alcohol 8 to 12 years ago. And he's gonna, the interviewer interviews the guy, but before he interviews the guy, he says, look, I want your permission not only to interview you, but as soon as I'm done, I'm going to interview your spouse or somebody else who knows a lot about you about these last 10 years parentheses don't lie we're going to check and very few people will say in fact nobody has said you can't interview my spouse or somebody else who knows a lot about me next we say in addition at the end of the interview we want a blood sample 
which is going to be state markers of heavy drinking, things like gamma glutamyl transferase, mean corpuscular volume that correlate with the usual quantity and frequency of alcohol intake. And we want a urine sample that'll tell us about your recent drug use. So we have double checks. Now the first part of the follow-up is 474 men. Can you, in a country like the United States, find 474 men? Well, I'm, there's an error on the slide. We have now found 473. You can find anyone in the United States, and I bet in Canada, who's not deliberately trying to hide. If we had time, it is the most fun part of this research. I've got stories that I will remember forever in trying to find some of these guys. But if you're persistent, you don't have to be bright, you just have to be persistent. And if you're persistent, you can find almost anyone. And according to our projections, because when we find people, we then contact them and we tell them we're going to interview them the latest we can, at least eight years and as close to ten years after their, their time of testing as we can. And through those interactions, we get an indication of how many people are going to be reluctant. And it will probably be out of the 474 we hope to find, I would project will successfully interview all but about five. And again, that takes persistence, and there are, there are a number of different ways to do that. But let me share with you, in this closing section of the formal part of my presentation, what do these guys look like later? And what I'm going to give you is the data on the first approximate 190 guys. And the 190 guys are moderately equally, the first 190 we happen to complete the follow-ups on and put into the computer. And they're fairly equally divided between sons of alcoholics and sons of non-alcoholics. Our group is all Caucasian, so they didn't change at the time of follow-up. As you expect in a group with an average age of about 30, in the early 30s, most of them are married. And basically, it is a moderately highly educated sample we dealt with, although we have people who only have high school graduation. Most of them have some years of college, and many have extended years of college. The next is, was there any difference between the sons of alcoholics and the sons of non-alcoholics in that first 190 in the proportion who drank? No, there was no difference at all. They were all drinkers, but we set that up because they were all drinkers at the time of initial study. Was there any difference in what they and their resource person, usually their spouse, told us on the usual quantity and usual frequency of drinking? Not much, but the maximum quantity the most they ever drank on an occasion was significantly different in the direction one would have predicted. Remember now, in the family history positives, theoretically, at least 50% and probably higher of the sons of alcoholics ain't carrying a predisposition to anything. They did not get the genes that increased the risk. So when you look at a, a huge group of sons of alcoholics, at least half, and our data would say perhaps 60% of whom, are not carrying a risk. When you look at that, obviously it's the people who don't have the increased risk are diluting the overall sample and the fact that you see a, a significant difference even of this small magnitude on the maximum quantity of drinking is hopeful that if you look at patterns of problems that might be called alcohol dependence, we'll see the differential regarding family history that we had hypothesized we would. The next thing we did is we're able to pull out from those data something that I warned you about before. My God, look at the proportion of men in the family history negative category who have had a variety of adverse life consequences during the 10 years from alcohol. In fact, it was about two-thirds of the family history negatives had at least one of those. Now, those aren't diagnostic of alcoholism, but they demonstrate how pervasive, less severe, hopefully more transitory problems are from drinking. But... When, I'm going to go back, okay, you can see that the pattern of most difficulties is a higher rate among the family history positives, and in fact, when you say, okay, how many guys had five or more problems, it was about double the triple in the family history positives compared to the family history negative, but drinking common, drinking at times to excess common, Minor problems, not necessarily always so minor. Very common, even in the family history negative. 
it means that we now have a group who's been exposed enough to booze on the follow-up that if there is a differential on the alcoholism risk, it should express itself. The next question is, how about drug use during the 10 years? This is Southern California laid-back sample. And even the family history negatives, the proportion of men who have had at least one intake of each of the categories of drugs is shown there. There ain't any difference between family history positives and negatives. In Southern California, although these guys are spread out throughout the United States, in young men in the United States in the 1980s, drug taking is the norm. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's the norm. And the two groups didn't differ. Now, I'm sorry to see. I am sorry to see that there's so much drug taking, but it's very important for one of our hypotheses. We hypothesized that the sons of alcoholics would not be at remarkably high risk for drug dependence. We didn't know. I, it's just a pure guess. And if the groups had been differentially exposed to the drugs, we wouldn't know whether any difference was what proportion had agreed to at least have some experience with those drugs. And if we look at drug-related problems, there ain't much difference. There's even less difference here on the proportion with drug-related problems for family history positives and family history negatives. Now that gives you a feeling. About 190 guys, looks like we're going to find almost everybody that at interview we can get alcohol history, drug history, mental health history, which I'm not boring you with a lot of slides. Let's get to the punchline. And one of the punchlines is the rate of disorders. The sons of alcoholics were more likely to have had some DSM-3R major diagnosis at follow-up than the sons of non-alcoholics. Look at the bottom of the slide. I'll tell you what it ain't. It ain't mental health problems. There was no difference on the rate of major depressive disorder. There was no difference on the rate of mania. There was no difference on the portion who developed a psychotic disorder. There was no difference on panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, or any of the other anxiety disorders. Being the son of an alcoholic does not increase your risk for other psychiatric disorders, especially when you're choosing sons of primary alcoholics, my jargon for fathers who had severe alcoholism but did not have pre-existing antisocial personality disorder or pre-existing other psychiatric syndromes. This is very consistent with our adoption study in 1972, very consistent with Goodwin's adoption study. In those adoption studies, sons and daughters of alcoholics, with one little exception regarding mild depression for daughters, but sons and daughters of alcoholics do not have an increased risk for other psychiatric disorders. Interesting as well, there was a study just published in Archives of General Psychiatry that took 80 kids who had had severe depressions in their teens. Now, some people would hypothesize depression in your teens, follow them up to age 30, they should have high risk for alcoholism, not a percentage point increase. It does not appear from our data or from my looking at the other data that al alcoholism risk predisposes you to other psychiatric disorders. Now, while you drink like a fish, you've got a lot of other psychiatric problems. But in the absence of heavy drinking, no evidence of increased psychiatric risk. Threefold increased risk for alcoholism? Uh, that should not be alcohol abuse or dependence. That line is only alcohol dependence. And that is highly significant, the increased risk for alcoholism, alcohol dependence among sons of alcoholics. And a slight increased risk, not significant for cocaine abuse or dependence or marijuana abuse or dependence, but we haven't broken out to find out whether this is cocaine or marijuana use in the context of alcoholism. So, slide. Conclusion regarding part of our 20-year study. The risk for alcoholism does predict, excuse me, alcoholism in a biological father does predict the risk for alcoholism in sons of alcoholics. And if we followed these guys up to age 50, I think it would be something like 30-ish to 40-ish percent of the sons of alcoholics and about 10% of the sons of non-alcoholics who would be showing the alcoholism. We haven't followed them long enough, but I'm not going to. Second conclusion, consistent with my reading of the best data in the literature, the risk for alcoholism does not increase your risk for major psychiatric disorders, unless you're using. If you're using, you show a lot of psychiatric symptoms that disappear with abstinence. Third, the risk for alcoholism does not increase your risk for heroin dependence, consistent with other studies, 
abuse of solvents or other types of drugs might slightly increase your risk for problems with marijuana and cocaine, but that's not clear yet. Now, the final punchline before I open for some questions is now let's look within the sons of alcoholics, and I have a subgroup of about 40 sons of alcoholics uh, that I was able to pull these data out from for this presentation. Let's look within the sons of alcoholics and ask, if we gave everybody an average rating of intensity of response to alcohol at time one, do the men who later develop alcohol dependence have significantly lower levels, lower scores than the sons, uh, excuse me, than the individuals with higher levels of sensitivity? And indeed they do. In this subsample, the sons of alcoholics in the subsample of about 38 or 39 guys, the sons of alcoholics who went on to develop alcoholism, now when you go back and pull their early data, had significantly lower levels of intensity of response to alcohol than the sons of alcoholics who did not go on to develop alcoholism. And when we looked within the family history negatives, it's a much smaller proportion of people who developed alcohol dependence. But the small proportion of family history negatives who developed alcohol dependence also were those with the lowest intensities of reaction to alcohol at the time of initial study. Well, you've been very patient. It is extremely hard after such a stimulating morning and the number of lectures that you've had to sit through a presentation such as this, which is data-based. But I've tried today to share with you a number of factors. Let me review what those are. First, alcoholism is genetically influenced, but not in everybody. Some people develop their alcoholism solely for environmental factors, and there are subgroups among alcoholics. You can, however, now reach out to families of alcoholics and say, whether genetic or environmental, your kids are at high risk because this is an extremely familial disorder. And if you take Shuket's data as an example, not necessarily the truth, I won't know if this is the truth, not for years, but if you take this example, it is possible that some people are at higher risk for alcoholism because of how they react to alcohol and they have less protection from developing severe repetitive intake of high doses of booze. They have less protection. You can advise alcoholics to let their family members know, especially their kids, hey, this is what alcoholism is, this is what it did to me, and this is what you're at risk for. And you might tell them that if I'm right, one among, I'm sure, many factors that put them at high risk is something they tend to be proud of. Those kids who are so proud about how well they can, quote, hold their liquor, aren't predestined to become alcoholics. Many of them will choose, will learn soon not to drink at all. But if they continue to try to drink the way other people do, it is those kids interacting with a heavy drinking environment that may be the highest risk of all. I have hoped to give you information that helps you in your practices, that helps you in your philosophy, that helps you in the information that you offer to colleagues and friends. 